Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a cold but sunny fall day in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is novelist Helene Wecker. Helene is author of the best-selling and award-winning book, The Gollum and the Genie, and its recent follow-up, The Hidden Palace. Helene and I are also debut buddies. Our first books came out the same month, in April of 2013. Helene and I talk about writing classes and pursuing higher education for creative writing, the despair when a book just isn't clicking, the loneliness of being a writer, and the way life can sometimes get in the way of a creative job. Enjoy my conversation with Helene Wecker. Okay, yeah. So, how is your how has your fall been? Oh, it's been it's been pretty good. It's been, you know, October hits and 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 somehow everything always falls apart a little. But um, we have uh, a puppy that we got in um, end of August, beginning September. And uh, he's, he's reorganized the house, you know, to his liking. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and also just growing by leaps and bounds. Of course. Um, and, you know, I'm up at 3 a.m. letting him out to pee and all of that. And so, so that's been <laughs> a little, you know, it's been sort of an extra challenge on top of everything else, but otherwise it's been it's pretty, pretty good. You know, getting back in the the writing swing, and the the kids are back in school in person. Thank God, and uh, <laughs> yeah, can't can't complain too much. Good, good. Now you're over in San Francisco, right? Yeah, I'm in Pleasanton, which is um, about forty minutes east of Oakland. So if if, okay. if anyone's familiar with the Bay Area, we're we're the one of the last stops on the Far East um, Bart line. I um I uh, all I know about San Francisco is that two of my best friends both live in uh, Redwood. Oh, and, okay. And I, I visited once, and it was gorgeous. And yes. I can see why everybody loves San Francisco. And I haven't been back since. <laughs> Redwood City is amazing. It's a very nice place. Um, yeah. And yeah, it takes forever to get to here, from here to there because of like traffic and the bridges and all of that. But yeah. yeah very pretty area. Um, but you're from the Midwest where I'm from. I'm from Cleveland. You're from Chicago. Yes. Yes. Um, I didn't know you were from Cleveland. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, one of my other best friends, uh, kind of my friend Ben, who I kind of consider my little brother, he uh-huh. uh, he lives in Chicago, um, and he he kind of adopted it. You know, he went there for school and hasn't left, and absolutely adores it. Yeah, I miss Chicago. It's it's really such a world class city. Um, I lived in the north suburbs, so um, if uh, if your if your friend has ever been to Great America. Uh, the, the, the Six Flags Great America up near the, the Wisconsin border. That's about 15 minutes away from my house. Oh, nice. House. Nice. Now, are you, uh, are, are you a, um, lifelong deep dish lover then? 
Yeah, it's I love it and I have to love it. Um, but it's not it is a particular niche of pizza. I think the either or is a very silly conversation to have. It is there is there is there are many categories of pizza and that is one of them. I don't like it better than other categories. I also lived in New York for a couple of years and developed a real love for New York style pizza. Um, and I'm, I miss both of those when I don't get them. Um, basically <laughs> what I'm saying is I could live on pizza in endless variety, I think. Right. Right. That's the, that's the nature of being a Midwesterner, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we have family who lives near Detroit. So of course, then you get the arguments over the Detroit style pizza, which I don't even know if I've like had proper Detroit style pizza. Oh, um, I, I have a few times and uh-huh. honestly, the very best ones, they hold up. Like oh, good. Okay. That, that crispy, thick kind of outer crust of cheese. Uh-huh. Oh, so dang good. Yeah. I think that my my, my brother um, actually lived in Ohio for a number of years, um, and he and his wife just moved um, to near Ann Arbor. Um, so presumably at some point in the near future, I'll have time to, I'll have an excuse to go out there and, and I'll see if he can get me some good Detroit style pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely find whatever the best is. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's good stuff. I, it's weird because I like eat pizza maybe once every three or four months these days. And mm-hmm. I still think about it all the time. Oh, cool. Well, that, <laughs> that's a recommendation then. So good stuff. Um, yeah. And you just, uh, earlier this summer, you had your second book come out. My second book, after many years, yes, uh, in June, um, came out. It's uh, The Hidden Palace. It's the sequel Mm -hmm. to uh, The Golem and the Genie, which was released way back in 2013. Um, Yeah, so was it 2000? Yeah, 13. 13. Yeah, Yeah, we came out. Our debuts came out the same month. Same month. You and me and and Wes Chu and Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember who else. But yeah, that was how you and I got to know each other, which was... Pretty funny. We were like tossed in. Um, we had there was like a cover contest thing. What was that? That was. Gosh, there's been a few things. I think we both got nominated for the Goodreads Choice Award. Yes, that's right. That's um, right. Yeah, there were a few things that we kind of got ended up at the in kind of the same the same bowl together. Yeah, same orbit, which is pretty yeah. cool. So yes, and you you have released many more books than I have since then. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but, uh, but yeah, no, that it's, that's like how, how, one of the things I remember about like that month and how amazing it was and, and, and nutty and just like what the heck's going on with my life now. But, uh, but you were just sort of a presence in it, which was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You kind of end up, you know, uh, even if you don't really like, cause we were mentioning before we started that we have never actually met in person. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still kind of you have like almost your graduating class, right? Totally, totally. Or like your freshman dorm, like your your floor mates who like you see them on campus later, like oh hi you, like yeah, yep, <laughs> yeah. That that's very funny. I was I wanted to ask you because I I feel like your kind of your writing and kind of your presence in publishing kind of it, it does this weird thing that you see occasionally where it straddles the line between kind of SFF and literary. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of get that with a bit of uh, kind of Susanna Clark and Michael Chabon, mm-hmm. um, those kind of writers. And, and I kind of lump you in with that. 
And I was kind of curious what your thoughts on are that are on that kind of whole thing. Well, for first, you say the, the free. You said um, your presence in publishing, and I had to like not giggle snort because I'm like I have a presence in publishing, um, but. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I feel like I hang out on the border um, in that way. I think there are ways in which it is a blessing and a curse. It's, it is, it's like the double-edged sword, right? It's, it's like on the one hand, I get to be in any number of conversations if I want to, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, and, and it does lend itself to a wider potential audience. If, you know, I've got, if there's, you know, I've got a, a decent book club following. Um, certainly, uh, I, I've worked uh, now with both books uh, with the Jewish Book Council, which has been a huge boon um, that they have, you know, basically helped me promote my books. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working, my, my editor, Terry Carton, is also the editor of a number of, you know, uh, just straight up literary authors. Um, and so there is, you know, whatever you want to say about, you know, reach or prestige or something like that. And on the other hand, it's, oh, but it's, it's monsters, you know? And so <laughs> you have to convince the people who don't read monsters to read the book. And you have to convince the people who only read monsters to read the book because it's also, Gilded Age New York and, you know, oh, but she's literary and, you know, and so and I do write to a certain extent. Um, I get complaints that my book has too much care. My books have too much characterization in them, that the plot doesn't move fast enough. And they don't. They don't move like a, you know, there are people who just want beat, 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 beat. And this is not that. And so I feel like I get a wider potential audience, but I always have to convince people, you know, like this is worth your time, honestly, you know? So, um, so yeah. And, and I feel like I'm not, you know, sometimes I wonder like, okay, do people remember that I'm in genre or, you know, I'm like not in, there's any number of cool kids clubs that I'm not, you know, like a shoehorn into and I don't you know it used to bug me and now I'm like you know what I got a life (laughs) I got a life to lead I got kids who need stuff from me I got you know the dog needs something whatever I don't I I also I I think it's one of the benefits of of being in my mid to late 40s now it's like look I don't have time for that so Um, anyway, no, it's, it it has been interesting, especially, and I think I haven't helped myself by only writing two books in eight years. Um, so there is that too. It's like, okay, and and whose radar am I on? Um, and I'm hoping to remedy that. I'm trying to get this third book out more quickly. Um, but other than that, yeah, it's just sort of like the story of my life is I don't quite fit here. I don't quite fit there. Whatever. I'll just deal. Right. Well, I I was reading an older uh, article that you had written um, that you, you where you basically touched on that. You kind mm-hmm. of talked about kind of your Jewish heritage and your kind of your your kind of uh, childhood heritage of being a nerd yeah. and kind of these things that kind of make you feel in multiple places and not quite fitting in one or the other. Um, and I, I I think that kind of I think that resonates for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, in often in different ways, 
but especially for people that are, you know, grew up kind of geeky, um, you know, especially before kind of the age of the internet, when it's so easy to find other fans. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I, I think that that hit, I mean, it certainly hit kind of a point for me of thinking, yeah, you know, when I was a kid and trying to kind of learn what I like, um, it was, there wasn't really people to talk to about it. Yeah. Um, you know, even my siblings were all so much older than me that, you know, occasionally we talk about, oh, there's this Star Wars book um, that, you know, that they read that they recommended or something. But by the time I was kind of a teenager and reading voraciously, all of my siblings were out of the house. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it's it is a little bit of an odd thing where you kind of straddle that line in multiple places. Um I, yeah. I remember kind of the first month when my book was out, I remember going to the bookstore and l- kind of looking for all the books from, you know, like I said, my, our graduating class, you know? Yeah. Yep. Um, and I remember not being able to find yours. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I, I thought that she was selling like crazy. <laughs> and then my wife goes, oh, no, it's over here in the literary section. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, well, dang her. She's in the livery section. She actually like, she's like a, like a big real writer. Oh no. And see, and, and see, I, I get that. And I feel that. And at the same time, it's like, oh, I didn't go to Clarion. I didn't work my way up from the slush pile at Clark's or fantasy or any number of those. And so there's that, you know, I, I did the MFA New York thing and I got my agent through, you know, through Columbia and, you know, mm-hmm. not, it's not like they issue them to you. It's the, you know, I met him <laughs> while I was there. Um, and so it's like, um, and on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, I've, she's got that pedigree or whatever. And it's like, okay, but look, monsters, like this is, this is, you know, this is it. This is, it's any number of roads will get you there. And, you know, I was, I was the one again, not fitting in. I was the one writing monster stories in my MFA at Columbia. And, <laughs> you know, that was not certainly, you know, I, I was, I was really lucky in that I had um, professors and um uh, you know, co uh, colleagues in, in, in my workshop who were really willing to read this stuff. Um, I know other people who were not as lucky, um, especially back then. This was the early 2000s. Um, I, and I, I think um, genre inflected stuff has become more, you know, more of a thing, more popular, more, and MFA programs have now become more, you know, they're just proliferating. And so many of them are, you know, yeah, like that's what we write here is, is fantasy or sci-fi or whatever. And that, that's just awesome. Um, but yeah, back then it was like, I was doing the weird thing and I was really lucky that people were, you know, just, willing to read and give honest feedback, you know, um, on the basis of what it was I was trying to do, not what it was they thought I should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. It's, it's interesting, especially on like kind of that high level of a, you know, of of a master's program. Mm -hmm. Um, did you feel like, like that was kind of, I don't know, maybe this is too of a, too direct of a question, but was it, was it, was it worth the time? The, the MFA program? Yeah. Yes, it was. Um, with a number of caveats. <laughs> uh, 
It, no, it absolutely was for me at that point in my life, in that economic greater situation in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Because what happened was I was in my mid-20s and I'd been out of college for like seven years. And I had this career in um, marketing communications. I'd worked first in Minneapolis and then I was in Seattle um, working at a public TV station. Um, and the whole time being like, I hate my career, but I don't know what else to do. And I'd never thought that I could be a writer like as a career. I thought that was like saying I want to be an astronaut. It just doesn't happen, you know. So unless it's meant to happen, if it meant to happen, you know, I would have done it by then, you know. And so I ended up, I knew something had to change and my, you know, then boyfriend, now husband and, and my therapist and, and I basically said, okay, let's, <laughs> something has to change. So I started taking um, uh, creative writing classes at uh, University of Washington in their night school program. And at about the same time that I um, realized that no, I really, I've got some talent here and I want to keep doing this. That was when the TV station laid me off. <laughs> and I had just decided like, okay, maybe I'll go to an MFA program. And so they laid me off and I'm like, okay, this is perfect. I have, yeah, I got like a job as a receptionist at a, uh, like a medical clinic. And I was, you know, it was like, something I could just do and leave and be done and go home and work on my writing and my MFA applications. And I had no mortgage. I had no kids, wasn't even married at that point. Um, and then, you know, Columbia let me in, which I still don't understand, frankly, on the, on the strength of work that I can't even look at now. Um, mm. And, then I was like, okay, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to New York. And it was like, you had, I had money saved up from working, you know, a quote unquote adult job. I had no real other strings or obligations or anything. And, you know, it was before the recession, it was before COVID, it was before everything. And I could sort of stare down the insane debt that I was about to get into and be like, I got the rest of my life to pay this off. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't as blithe as that. I mean, it was, you know, it was a bit of soul searching, um, but it was right for me. And I knew that I thrive in an academic environment. I'd figured that out about myself. I wanted to just go and be in a boot camp. And if Columbia was going to let me in, then hell, I was going to do it at Columbia. Um, so that, that was that decision, but it really, there were a number of people in the program who really probably should not have been there, not in terms of talent, they were talented as heck, but they just wanted people to tell them how awesome they were and weren't accepting criticism. And it's like, why are you paying all this money to sit here and tell us, you know, we're, and, and say, you tell us, well, you don't understand what I'm trying to do here. It's like, okay, well, yeah, we don't. So you have to show that on the paper, you know, like it, it, there were a number of personalities there. Um, but I was lucky that I, I, you know, I fell in with, with, there, there were a lot of, like, like you said, in, in like who you matriculate with. Um, I had a number of, uh, really great writers in my workshops who I'm still really good friends with to this day. And a number of them live here in the Bay area, um, or have, you know, 
we're all like either married and divorced or with kids or we're not and moved and come back. And, you know, so it's like we've all been it's it's like a group that we've all sort of stayed in touch. And so um, so that has and, and that as much as like the classes themselves, especially in the first few years after like getting out of the program were having that group was invaluable. It was like we we would meet up like every month or six weeks at someone's house and drink wine and commiserate about how hard it was to like work a day job and try to finish our books at the same time. And we can't, you know, it's you can you, you can only complain to your spouse so much, right? Because they're gonna just start getting so right. pissed off. And and so it was like someone we it was like it was free therapy with wine was basically what it was. And we did this for a number of years and we all, you know, started publishing, which was awesome. So it was it was a real it, going to Columbia, like I said, not for everyone. It worked for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I I, I feel like I have a I have a love hate relationship with the concept of writing classes. Yeah. Because I, you know, like I, I went to school and, uh, you know, I'll, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I feel like the only thing I got out of school professionally was meeting Brandon Sanderson. Oh, uh, um, yep. But and, hey, if that's enough, but that's. That, but that's huge because yes. he ended up blurbing my first book and yes. I took a bunch of writing classes from him. And. And so like, it's a big thing, but it's also like, um, writing classes themselves are like you kind of touched upon. There's such a weird thing because yeah. the, the type of people that take them, there's this gigantic kind of range of, you know, the type that want to be artists mm -hmm. and then the type that like seriously want a career. And then there's the type that this is just an elective and they're just doing something for fun for a semester. Yep. And did, and did you go straight out of, was this in, in your undergrad that you took the classes or afterwards? I don't. Oh, uh, this is my undergrad. Yeah. Okay. I, so I, I actually took Brandon's first class. I think it was the year his first book came out. So he oh. wasn't like capitalized big Brandon Sanderson yet. Yep. Um, and, uh, and that was, you know, it was a huge, it was really good timing for me because I kind of got maybe more attention than I would have a, even a couple of years later. Yep. Um, but, uh, but it is funny how you kind of, you do make friends and you kind of fall into the, with the type of people that kind of have the same goals as you. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm still, I'm still friends with some of the people I met in that class. Um, yeah, good. one of them, one of them lives right down the street and works for Brandon as a full-time artist. And he did oh, my cool. maps from my books. Oh my God. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. You know, I, they talk about school in general as, you know, this is where you go to learn stuff. But mm -hmm. I, I sometimes think actually it's where you go to meet people, right? Yeah. And I think that was one of the benefits for me of waiting until I knew this was absolutely what I wanted to do and that I'd been out in, you know, the working world for a number of years and I had learned how to pay my own rent and, you know, pay bills and keep the roof over my head and all of that. Because you start to figure out what it is that you need from from opportunities. You see opportunities and you start to know how to approach them and how to get stuff out of them. Yeah. And so, I mean, there were a number of um, people straight out of undergrad at the Columbia program, some of whom um, went on to be phenomenal writers and published and, um, you know, including like a couple of really good friends. But I remember looking at them and being like, oh, my gosh, what? what even like life experience is there for you to write about yet? You know, which was like really arrogant of me because, you know, a lot of these people came from, you know, 
you know, backgrounds were there is a lot to talk about by the time you, you know, get out of high school. But, but it was also just like, I'm just glad that I waited. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I was way too immature straight out of undergrad to have gone into creative writing. I just, I needed to be out in the world for a bit. You said something a little bit earlier that I, I thought was fascinating, which was you said that you figured out that you were, um, that you kind of were comfortable in academia. Yeah. Um, and I was just earlier th- this morning, I was recording another uh, episode with Joe Abercrombie and ah. we were talking about how we, neither of us uh, really likes research. Like, you know, if we can get it from Wikipedia, that's like ideal. Um, and, and, and I saw me. in one of your things where you talked about how you love research. Yeah. And, it, and it, I just thought that that kind of stark difference between just two people that ostensibly do the same thing for a living. Mm-hmm. Hey, Page Break listeners. Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer, or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. Where does, where did, where do you like research from? Like that feels like homework to me and I hate it. Uh, You know, it's, it's that sort of curiosity killed the cat thing. I'm very, very curious about just, well, how did that work? And what did people think of that back then? And what, you know, just wanting to know details. And so then I go looking for the details and then I find out, any number of things. And I'm like, well, I need to learn about that more. And then I get more books and then I have to, and then it's like, oh wait, but this thing over, it, it really is like the Wikipedia rabbit hole, except like with interlibrary loan with books from, you know, universities <laughs> and stuff, you know, because, and oh gosh, especially now with, um, uh, so much arch- archival stuff is on the internet now that, you know, it used to be back when I was first writing the first book, it was, okay, I need to go like, you know, I was at Columbia at the time and I had to, um, you know, I was lucky enough to have access to their libraries. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to go down, you know, seven floors into the stacks here and, and walk down this aisle that clearly hasn't been dusted in about two years and pick up, you know, this book off the shelf that, you know, no one has ever opened since it was first published in 1903. And now these days, it's like, well, that book is just on Google Books and, and you know, you can read it for free. And, and 17 other books that you want on the same subject are also on Google Books that you can read for free. But I mean, I don't know, to get back to your story of why your question of why do I like research? I honestly don't know. I just think it's really cool to find things out. And it's no more complex or highfalutin than that. It's like, I know a thing now that I didn't know before. And that makes the world a little more understandable. And I mean, growing up, I mean, it's probably my parents too. We, you know, we had, you know, back before everyone had phones at the table, we had a, one of those giant world encyclopedias that was, you know, 13 volumes that was upstairs. 
And every few days at the dinner table, someone would ask a question of like, why is this or why is that? And we'd end up with half the volumes from upstairs brought down to the dinner table and we're all looking things up. And it was just, it was just part of the, you know, it was something my parents encouraged was being curious about things and then just learning. But that's cool. That's kind of a cool like thing to take away from your childhood, you know? Yeah. And I mean, my dad was the one who got me into sci-fi. He's a, um, an engineer by training. And my mom is a li- was a librarian by training. And so that was all we just, you know, asking questions and trying to find things out was sort of like one of the family pastimes. Uh, it's funny because you just as you were saying that, I realized that my kind of perception of school is not as a place of learning. My perception of school is just as a place where people tell you to do things you don't want to do. Yeah, I get that quite a bit. That is, is yeah, I I was lucky in that I, I'm just, for whatever reason, wired to be good at school. And it's maybe it's not even learning. It's just being good at school. <laughs> I was always good at standardized tests. Mm-hmm. I was always good at, you know, to some extent at studying, I think I've got a little bit of ADHD and that sort of, you know, threw a wrench into the things that I didn't want to do, like, you know, math, but (laughs) everything else, like I was the one who you, you know, in English class, you're assigned three chapters. Well, I'm going to read six just because I don't want to put the book down. That was, you know, and then I would go in and ace the test the next day and, you know, feel like, well, it wasn't really work. That was just reading. So, but I see, and I, what's funny is I see my, my kids, my daughter is pretty much the same as I was. And my son is exactly the same as what you're describing, which is also what my husband was, which was, why am I here? These people are just ordering me around and giving me busy work and I hate it and I can't wait to leave. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's, I totally get that. I, I actually almost, I wish that I had had a healthier relationship with that kind of thing when I was a kid, but, but mm-hmm. I, I felt that way about uh, school. I felt that way about church, felt that way about, yep. you know, kind of extracurricular activities. Yes. Like you're just marking time, right? Yeah. It's like, just, just marking time. Let me leave. Watching the clock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know. It's, it's, Uh, Everybody kind of comes out of their childhood and their experiences with, you know, being a young person with different takeaways. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think uh, actually coming away with that of of liking to learn and being able to uh, being able to be good at learning is actually a really healthy takeaway. It, 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 yeah, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I had, you know, a family that encourage that. I'm lucky that I had teachers that encourage that. And I'm lucky that I had the temperament for it in the first place. Honestly, I think a lot of stuff just sort of lined up for me in that way. Um, and I've, I've managed to take advantage of that. And, you know, that's, it's worked out for me pretty, you know, I, I like writing as much as it kills me, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I wish I wrote more quickly. But, uh, but yeah, that's, I, I think I've been, I've been a pretty lucky person, all, all, all things considered. Well, and you, um, you mentioned that you've, you had eight years between the two books. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've got to imagine, I mean, I don't want to assume, but I've got to imagine that that's just stressful as heck. It was, it was murder. It really, I can't, 
there were years that I just sort of don't remember um, because, and part of that is also that I had, I started when the first book published, I had a one-year-old um, and then I sold and, and then like, Oh God, I'm trying to think of the, what, what the timeline was, but in quick succession after that was when I got pregnant and now I had a toddler and a baby and then another book deal. And so I was trying to figure out how to be a parent as and a writer at the same time. And part of, I mean, besides the whole, you know, 3 a.m. feedings and, you know, sleeplessness and whatever, there's also just a certain, at least for me, um, a really deep disconnect between those two activities, mm -hmm. especially with young kids. Young kids, it's about triage. It's reactionary and, you know, you are just reacting to what's going on and you are planning for the next, how to get through the next 15 minutes. And it's just sort of this constant state of being under siege. And writing is then having to think more laterally um, and try to end associatively and planning out for a larger picture and trying to like pull your brain back from like the, the situation on the ground. And those two things for me really didn't mesh very well. And it took me a long time to fit, you know, to be like, why am, why am I not writing? What is this? What is going on? Why can't I seem to get anything down on paper? I was just researching and, and losing myself in the research. I, you know, quite a bit of that being procrastination, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but also, I think I wrote at least three books worth of material before I, you know, every, every word in, in the book in, in um, Hidden Palace is like represents three or four words that I just discarded along the way, you know. Right. And it just it was just a mess. It was a total mess. And it was because I just didn't have the capacity to have my brain up my head on straight about about all of it for a long time. And so it just got out of hand. And then I would just sit and look at it. And I mean, there are nights where I was just like lying in bed, staring up at the ceiling, being like, well, I'm going to have to figure out how to give back the advance. And I'm going to have to get another job. Maybe I'll just raise chickens. You know, I could be, I could be a homesteader. I could do that. Yeah, that could work. And, you know, it's just those like really dark night of the soul things about it. And, and eventually, um, the kids got old enough and, um, HarperCollins stopped giving me extensions <laughs> and COVID hit. And then, you know, so last summer, um, not, not, you know, summer 2020, um, my husband took over the entire household for two months so I could sit in a tent in our backyard and write. And that was what I, that was like my pandemic summer. What I did last summer was just, I wrote, finished, finally finished the book and turned it in, you know, basically by the skin of my teeth. And that, you know, I can't do that again. I don't want to do it again. I, I think, I think my whole, my whole entire family will leave me if I do, you know, <laughs> like they will take a vote and they will kick me out is what, is what will happen um, if I try to do that again. But, um, but that was just, it was just what needed to happen for whatever reason, for whatever time in my life that was, it was like that book just needed eight years and it sucked and I'm just glad it's done. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's I, I think that 
people don't people that kind of look at what we do for a living and look at you know say oh a full-time author that sounds like the best thing in the world um in a lot of ways i I absolutely love my lifestyle and my job and everything but I, i think people don't really realize just how difficult it is to first of all be a self-employed in general yeah and then take on top of that a creative like field that you're in it's just you know every single distraction hits you 10 times harder than other people um and and you can get so far up your own butt without even realizing it just because of the solitude it's like i went down so many dead ends that I was convinced we're going to be, we're, this is what's going to save the book. And, you know, it was just another dead end and I just couldn't see it. And, you know, eventually I was able finally to like get the perspective that I needed. And, you know, cause I finally got some, some readers to get me some good feedback, but yeah, just writing at home alone is, it is wonderful and freeing and it is deeply lonely and it's just really hard to to figure out what the heck you're doing in on any given day. Yeah, and you um I, I I noticed that kind of looking at some of especially kind of some of the nonfiction articles you've written before, um, that you you do kind of you dwell a little bit on kind of the loneliness. And we touched on that earlier. Uh kind of you know, the loneliness <laughs> of dwell? being kind of uh, you know either religiously different or or uh or your pop culture is different than what other people like mm-hmm. um and I, I i don't know i that's very fascinating to me because i grew up uh in a very big house where my parents raised six kids but i was mm-hmm. the youngest by 6 years and so oh boy. by the time i hit 12 i was the only child in this big crumbling house with a big yard oh my gosh and so like it's i don't know it just resonated with me because that kind of these ideas of loneliness, I don't think they always create authors. Uh-huh. You know, I don't think every author's backstory comes from being a lonely kid, but I think lots of us do. Yeah. And it's and, a, and a lot of time spent in your own head, yeah. even if you're around other people. I mean, sometimes it's the loneliness of like your, your situation in which that's sort of like what's presented to you. I was a very um, anxious, dreamy kid. And I spent a ton of time in my own head, even, I mean, I grew up in a family of four, very tight, very loving. Um, It's not like I was abandoned to my own devices or anything. Um, It was just who I was that I was, I was the one reading Star Trek novels, walking between class, like, like with my head down in the book and my backpack on me. And I would bump into people and they would laugh at me. And that was, and I, it's funny to me that you say, you know, and I think I do, I dwell too much on like sort of the loneliness of it all. And I think part of that is because I'm trying to get into my characters and they are very lonely people by nature. Um, and so I think there's a certain feedback loop that happens in which I have to remind myself, no way, I do have like a very loving family and a very, you know, I, I there are people out there who would miss me if I was gone. And, you know, so it's like, I don't know why it has sort of ended up that way. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of us were just sort of lonely, weirdly lonely kids. And I think there's a, even with the internet today, I think maybe even not just despite, but because of the internet today, I think there's a lot, um, a lot of kids who go through the same. And, and so it's like, I'm writing for them too, I think. Yeah. 
That's cool. Do you do you think about your audience a lot? I don't. You know, I, I that's a really good question. I think I do, but I'm not sure who to picture. <laughs> um, because I do get sort of, you know, the Florida boobies on the one hand and the 12 year olds on the other who the Florida boobies give the book to. And that's that's actually a really cool thing. I've had, you know, quite a few uh, readers tell me that they shared the book with their kids and that it became, you know, something they talked about together. And that's I mean, I remember doing that with books with my parents. And so that's just an awesome, awesome thing. Um, I think, you know, I've always sort of subscribed to the um, write the book that you want to read, but isn't out there yet. Um, uh, philosophy. So I don't think I have like a demographic in mind beyond like people who are like me and like the stuff that I'm into. Um, but I do want to write and I do want to entertain them. And I do want to feel like they're getting their money and time's worth out of the book. And, you know, I also know that it's not for everyone. So, I mean, I get, I don't know if you ever get this. If, if people come up to People come up to me and say, Helene, I'm really, really sorry. I started your book and then I put it down and it wasn't even that I didn't like it. I'm like, stop talking. I did that last Thursday with a book that was completely fine and I have no idea why I put it down and I just did. You know, it's like it can't be everything to everyone. It can't be the, you know, and sometimes <laughs> I don't know about you, but last year, like I couldn't finish a book to save my life. It was just it was so hard to just keep my brain on anything. Um, that, you know, I, I, so yeah, it's, I feel like there's like, when I picture my audience, it's not a person, it's more like sort of like a, a crowd of expectant people that I have to sort of produce a thing for. And I want to make the best thing I can for them. Right. That makes sense. I, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Cause I, I feel like every author has a totally different relationship with their, their audience and their career and, you know, kind of how, how they feel about themselves as a writer. Mm -hmm. And do you, I, I know you kind of, you mentioned that you, in the gap between books, you kind of, you had a couple of those kind of dark moments of the soul kind of thing. Do you, yep. do you kind of look forward in your career over the next, you know, 30 years and, and try to envision it? Or does that feel a little bit too overwhelming? Oh gosh. Right now, it feels a little too overwhelming to look beyond the next book. I have ideas of things I'd like to do that would be, you know, more about trying something completely new, not like, you know, book ideas or outlines that I've got in my pocket or anything more like, you know, it would be really cool to try to write for TV, you know, that that sort of or, you know, to write a graphic novel. How would I even do that? Um, and, and I guess the theme between those is like, well, that would be collaborative and that would be, you know, having a, a working relationship with someone. And maybe that's like something that I'm interested in is, is, is getting out of like my, my, my little bedroom that you see before you. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm just so lucky to be where I am right now with things that, I, and so much of the rest of my life is sort of dependent on what's going on with my family. Yeah. That yeah. I'm just going to ride this for a while. And I think I will change directions when I feel I need to. Um, but I certainly don't have like a five or 10 year plan. I used to be the kind of person who was like, you have to have a plan. You have to know where you're going. And now I'm like, you know what? It'll be okay. I'll figure it out. 
it'll be fine. <laughs> I, I, I feel like kind of that, I don't know, blind optimism, maybe. I, I, yeah. I feel like it resonates with me a little bit more every year. Yeah. I, I, I think of myself as kind of a positive nihilist, like nothing matters and that's fine. Yeah. And, and it actually makes looking at, you know, trying to envision the next, you know, decade of my life or whatever, it makes it a little easier because it's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, it'll work out, you know, yeah. I'll put the work in, I'll do what I can and hopefully everything will be fine. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of that is like just, having learned lessons of, you know, I have, especially with, you know, the, the, with Hidden Palace, it was, I had a plan. I had a big, long plan broken out into chapters and, you know, an outline and all of that. And it all crashed and burned and I had to rebuild it from scratch. And so some of it is, and then, you know, so that's like the work side of it. And then like the rest of my life side of it is like, well, we didn't plan for COVID. We all managed, you know, that was, we all managed to, you know, my family, you know, we were very lucky. No one, no one got ill and, but it certainly upended our life for, you know, two years or yeah. a year and a half and counting now. And so I, I think one thing that has sort of fallen out for me on just the last eight years is to be a little looser with myself about that and a little more forgiving um, about, you know, if, if I don't have a long-term, you know, 10 bullet point sort of thing planned for myself you know okay fine you'll get there you'll do it i uh i talked i talked to my therapist a lot about not beating up on myself yeah uh, because it's it's that vicious cycle of of once you start beating up on yourself too much like it's always Mm -hmm. good to kick yourself in the pants occasionally right yeah yeah but once you beat up on yourself too much then you get depressed and then you don't do the thing you're supposed to do anyways. And then you beat up on yep. yourself more. Yep. And then it's, and then it's like you're fighting with yourself and it's, it's, it's that angrily eating ice cream at 11 PM sort of feeling of yeah. like, well, I'm going to show you all by doing something that's really not productive. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like who exactly is, is winning in this situation? The answer is no one, but you know, it's, I, I feel myself doing it anyway sometimes. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you think having kids has forced you to kind of be a little bit more loose, a little bit more malleable as a person? I think yes, uh, in a word. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> there's, there's a lot, 
Oh, there's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> definitely. Because you, so my younger child um, is neurodiverse. He's on the autism spectrum um, with some ADHD sprinkles on top. And that, you know, my, it has ended a, it has lent a certain air of unpredictability um, to home life in some ways, in, in ways both big and small. Um, things like, you know, we thought that you could just put a kid in school and they were fine. And kids just went to school and there was, you know, it, how am I going to put this? without sounding like I'm, I'm ragging on my son because I'm absolutely not. Right. He's around peg. He's around peg in a square hole sometimes. Mm -hmm. And we will get the calls from school. And, you know, it's like, okay, stop everything. Go in, you know, assess the situation. What actually happened? What needs to be fixed about here? What can we do to support him in the classroom? He's only seven. So, and, you know, he had a year and a half of, of distance learning and now he's back in the classroom with 23 other kids and that's a lot. So, you know, and it's getting, you know, it's better now where there's like adjustments happening on everyone's part, but at, you know, back in September, it was like, you know, am I going to get through the day without a phone call? And it was, you just have to accept it as it happens, accept the situation as it is. There's no point in being angry at anyone. It's okay. The day stops. I go in. I support my son. I talk to the administration. We all figure it out. We take the meetings that we need to and we go forward and we support him at home. And, you know, and then also we, all, we have an entire other kid who also need, remember that she needs attention too. And we need to work with her and we need to, you know, and do her activities and all that stuff. And so what. What can happen sometimes is that the writing gets sort of shunted to the side. And I know, you know, it, and, and it's this constant balance of, okay, so today was not a career day. That's okay. There will be career days. Um, you know, that doesn't, it isn't an excuse to just, you know, say, okay, well, the whole day is screwed. So I need, I can just like sit and watch Netflix or whatever. But it's also like, this is my life and I am living it as I need to. And so, yeah, there is a certain amount of flexibility that has to come from that because it's either that or turn into a person that I wouldn't want to be around. You know, um, I need to be the mom that my kids need and I need to be the writer that my books need. And sometimes that those two things happen on the same day and sometimes they don't. And that's just how it goes. Yeah, it's it's tough to kind of think about yourself as one type of person mm -hmm. and then life changes. You know, you have kids or you get a career or whatever, and then you realize maybe you're not the type of person you thought you were, or maybe you realize you have to become a different type of person. Yes. Yes, exactly. There is, there is a very steep learning curve um, that, you know, I think any major life change hands you to begin with, but, you know, also, you know, what we're trying to do here, like you and me and all the other writers, this isn't easy. It's like there's there's there isn't like the office structure. There isn't a career ladder that you see in front of you every single day where you can be like, OK, well, I'm going to go from this role to this role to this role and I can jump sideways if I need to. And here's our you know competitors across the street and here's how they do it. It's more it's so much more amorphous than that. And just having to figure out from, you know, maybe not from scratch, but 
from sometimes not much more than scratch, like, and then going forward from there um, and making sure, you know, you've got support and your family has support and all of that. It's, it's a lot. I mean, it's not, it's, it's a privilege to be able to do it. It's also just a heck of a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And so I, this kind of shoehorns in with something I was curious about what, when you're going about your day, uh-huh. what do you consider work time? Like if you look back at your day after having done it, uh-huh. what, what kind of pieces of the creative process do you consider work and what kind of pieces do you not consider work? Oh, good question. Um, certainly like the sitting down in front of the computer and writing is work. Yeah. Weirdly enough, and you know, I shouldn't say weirdly enough because I think a lot of people do this, shower, I get a lot of creative thought done in the shower. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> One of my favorite creative spots. Totally. And so I will just like be in there thinking, okay, so what's going to happen? And that's where like I do my forward planning for like, um, you know, the next like, okay, what, where do I need to be in a couple chapters? How am I going to get from here to there? That's like done in the shower, weirdly enough. And then, so there's that. And then there's the writing itself. Um, if I'm doing research, if I'm having, yeah, see, I'm trying to change my, my, my sort of daily setup. Now I'm trying to push the research, like the longer term research to the afternoon. If I need to, look up a thing like, okay, like a specific piece of information, like, okay, in this time period, I've got a character who's going to go out to lunch somewhere in Midtown in 1930 or whatever. And he's this class and he's this, you know, profession, what restaurant, what type, what street would he have gone to? What type of restaurants would he have gone to? You know, just like those those little salient details that like, you know, here and there really will draw a picture. If I do that, that's like a quick and dirty research um, during the writing process. If I'm looking to get more of a background idea of a particular time period or, um, you know, like with, with the previous book, it was, you know, I need to learn about World War One. Okay, well, that's not like a quick and dirty Wikipedia search. That's, you know, what, what was the, the political situation in the Middle East that, you know, led the Ottoman Empire to throw in with Germany, blah, blah, blah. So that's a book that's like in the afternoon and I will take notes. I'll sit and read and either highlight or, um, you know, if I'm using a, a library book on Kindle, I'll highlight on the Kindle or, you know, and I'll take sometimes take physical notes. But yeah, that's afternoon work. And so that's because I've learned that if that I get really sleepy in the afternoons. And so I have to get the actual writing done in the morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if I push it to the afternoon, if I let myself do like emails and whatever in the morning, then in the afternoon, if there's a, a big enough chance that I'm just going to fall asleep at my desk, that I don't, I'd rather fall asleep answering emails, frankly, than I would, um, while I'm writing. So, so that's like, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I save that stuff for the afternoon. And also because like at this point, you know, my day ends pretty much at, at, you know, two 30, cause I have to go pick the kids up. So, and then, yeah, that's like, I'm, I'm front loading my day. Like I try to start writing as close to seven 30 as I can and get as much as I done can done before lunch and then a little more writing after lunch. And then after that, it's, um, you know, admin research and the rest of my life. I, see, I was curious because do you consider the, or at least in the back of your head, mm-hmm. do you consider the admin and the research as part of your work? The research is. 
because it feels so closely tied with what it is that I'm writing because as I'm reading and taking notes, I'm like, okay, so how is this going to affect this? You know, how is this going to affect the book? Well, I could have this person over here and no, and I start to, you know, do the forward planning as I'm researching the admin stuff less so that's more that does feel more like a different role that's like i am my own assistant at that point that feels like i've got a different hat on um but on the other hand that's certainly part of the business of writing it's just not the writing itself right and i do at this point have an assistant who um uh helps me with my social media presence among other things (laughs) and that has been a huge weight off um because Twitter and Facebook and Instagram will suck me in and destroy me. Yeah. And so being able to offload that onto someone else has been just a godsend that I can still have a presence online and not pay for it in terms of like hours of writing lost has been big. Yeah, that makes sense. I I end up getting a virtual assistant. Gosh, I think it's maybe up to a year now, maybe longer. Uh Um, And honestly, I mean, she just takes care of sending out my newsletter and updating, you know, like doing a graphic for me if I need it or updating my website. And it's such like a weight off my shoulders in terms of scattered kind of keeping me from getting distracted by all these other random things. Yep. I I think the reason I asked is because I realized recently that my entire career, I've struggled with defining what is work for me as a creative professional. Hmm. Because I guess in my head, I've always only regarded sitting down and literally typing as the work. That's my job. Yeah. And so yeah. so if, if, if you came to me you know, four years ago and said, Brian, how much work did you do this last week? I probably would get super despondent and say, well, I only worked for two hours. Yeah. When the fact is, is I, I also spent, you know, 20 hours thinking about the book. I also yep. spent, you know, 10 hours doing admin like, but, but I've always had this really unhealthy idea that, oh, I only work a tiny amount, you know, a good work week is only 10 hours. Yeah. But yeah, that's just the pure writing part. Creative, creative work does not fit like what the American corporate work ethic wants it to look like. Yeah. And I remember having this conversation is really, I've never forgotten this, uh, with, um, a poet in my, um, at Columbia in my MFA program. And he was, he wrote this poetry that was just, I mean, heartrending about, you know, basically being, you know, gay and closeted as a kid and, 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 you know, sort of coming out from that, you know, blossoming out and becoming who he was now. And, and, and so he was having this conversation with his dad. He was trying to explain like what it, you know, cause his dad was having these questions of like, so what is it that you do all day as, as, you know, as a poet. And his dad asked him at one point, okay, so how many book, how many, uh, um, poems are in a book and he's like a book of poetry, like a chapbook or whatever. And he said, you know, like, I don't know what it was like 20 or something. And he said, well, how long does it take you to write one of those poems? And he said, oh, well, you know, all put together probably about, I don't know, eight hours. And his dad's like, okay, so if you take eight hours and you multiply that by 20, you should be able to write a book of poems in about a week. And, you know, and he's doing like this 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 journeyman math and, and and all I could think is oh my god you'd end up in a mental hospital 
trying to do that much creative work in that short of amount of time, like with all of this, like you could tell every word of these poems is just ripped out of this guy's soul. And it's like, you can't do that eight hours a day. It doesn't work. It just doesn't. You know, you do a little of that and then you go eat lunch and you let your brain cook and then you come back <laughs> and then you write a few more words and then, you know, you throw away three of the words that you wrote before and then you get up and you walk around and you hate yourself. And that's just how it works. You know, that's just how a poem happens. It's you can't do it the way that, you know, you, you know, like 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 a tool and die sort of thing. It just doesn't work. Yeah, I uh, man, I, I feel like hating yourself is sometimes part of the creative process. Right. Like it. it, it feels unfortunately like like that's just a, like it is one of the the pit stops you just come back to every once in a while right and i i don't think i even because i i tend to not be i tend to not over romanticize what i do for a living as kind of like mm -hmm. great art or anything um mm -hmm. but even even coming from kind of a a, a more i don't know more workman per, per, perspective i still kind of look at it and think man, you know, it's, it's so much different than doing a normal job and, yeah. and the creativity, you know, like the, like hating yourself is just, you know, you work in this cycle of kind of, of, okay, I did a really good job on this thing. I'm pleased with it. I'm going to move on. I'll do this next thing. And then suddenly you realize, oh, actually this next thing is making the last thing not work. Oh, I hate that. Yes. Oh, dang it. Yes. What am I going to do? And, and you're kind of constantly working on this weird creative puzzle. Uh, yes. That and the picture on the box keeps changing. That's the thing that kills me. <laughs> it totally does. It's like it, it's that was what the oh where where it's it's like okay I had this piece and I have this piece and I have this piece and I don't know where they all go now because the thing that I thought I was making is not the thing that I was making and now I've got these pieces for some other thing. Well, can that be this thing? I don't know. We'd have to change this thing, you know. And it just it just ugh, yeah. <laughs> I get real articulate about it, if you can tell. Well, and when you say something like, oh, you hate yourself, you say that to somebody, you know, that doesn't write for a living. And they'll kind of look at you and say, well, is that healthy? Do you need to talk to a therapist? But it's it's part of the process of of hating. It's not even that you hate yourself. It's ha you that you hate that you couldn't you couldn't creatively plan ahead properly to only mm -hmm. do this in one draft, you know? Yes. And it's like, it's like, it's more hating the process, right? It's that the process is entirely from yourself. Yeah. And so there's no one else to hate. See, like if it was your boss, you just hate them. Mm -hmm. But you know, why couldn't you plan ahead? Why are you giving me this work now that like completely negates the work that I, you know, did last week and you don't have that. It's all you. So that's like the person that, that's the only person left to, to be pissed off at is yeah. yourself. Yeah. And it's, you know, in a purely corporate world, if you went and you said, okay, I'm, I'm throwing out, you know, 60,000 words or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and you go, oh, well, that was the last two years of my work life mm -hmm. in a corporate world. That's a disaster. Um, yeah. But, you know, kind of for us, it's, it's par for the course. You kind of have to say, okay, it's not a total waste. I'm going to use mm -hmm. this element of what I had been working on and I'm going to, mm -hmm. I built a good structure. I think I can steal from myself. Um, yeah. but, but you have to be able to be, be willing to say, okay, you know, there's four months of my life that I'm going to toss down the drain and, yep. and that's okay. Yeah. I got really into the whole productivity thing for a while and there, 
you know, especially, you know, back in the like mid 2000s when it was all, um, oh gosh, what's his name? David Allen and getting things done and, and all of that stuff. And there is a real disconnect between that and the creative process mm-hmm. um, that I think relates to all of this. And, and, you know, it took me a long time to really figure that out that I could not, you know, pro- productive my way to, to a better book. You know, I could, I could make the rest of my life more, run more smoothly in order to, you know, clear my brain out for the process as it existed, but I was still going to do things like write 15, 20,000 words and then realize they were all the wrong words. But I had to write those in order to realize what it was I was really trying to write. And that's the, th- you know, that's why I try not to beat myself up too much is because sometimes that's the only way to get there. And, you know, there's no way sometimes to figure that out ahead of time. There just isn't. Yeah, and it's it's like a I don't know if you're if you were building a a, a like a a building like if it was mm-hmm. you know if you were putting up an apartment complex you know you'd you'd have to put up scaffolding ahead of time and and oftentimes that early writing is just your scaffolding. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You're laying the groundwork for what you eventually want to be really solid. Yeah. But it's it's not not necessarily going to work on the first draft every time. <laughs> exactly. Honestly, that infuriates me. I hate writing multiple drafts and <sighs> I just uh it it makes me so angry, but yeah. like my my first book in every series winds up being multiple draft and then my second and third books end up being really close to one draft, but that first huh. book is what kills me each time. That's fascinating because it's the setup. It's like the it's getting all the pieces to the right size and getting them in the right positions. That, that yeah, it's logistics. That's and figuring out yeah what it is that you have. That's interesting. That's really fascinating. I'm trying with um, the 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 book I'm working on right now um, is uh, the third book in the series. And so this is still same world then. Still same world. Okay. And I'm trying my darndest this time to write a full quick, crappy draft Mm -hmm. and go back from there and, you know, just make sure first, make sure that I've got all every, you know, all those pieces in place. And my problem is I try to get, I feel like I need to, you know, not necessarily wordsmith it, um, you know, as I'm working the first draft, but I, I, so much of my, a lot of my writing, so much of it relies on like the specific characterizations that, I tend, you know, I need to know everyone's motives in down to like the fine grain. And so right now I'm like, forget that. Just get them there and then figure it out because I, I just need to figure out a better, quicker way to write the stuff that I write that isn't going to take eight years. I mean, there's got to be a happy medium somewhere, right? Like it's not either eight years or one year. I should be able to do a book in two to three, you know? <laughs> So that should be enough. Yeah. Yeah. Find something <laughs> a little bit more, a little less daunting, uh, yeah. less daunting than one year, but not yeah. that li- gives you free reign to just kind of <laughs> let it wander away yeah. from you. I think the second book I also had, um, the, the, the time span of, of the second book, like from beginning to end, like the, the chrono- chronology is 15 years. It starts in 1900 and ends in 1915. Oh. And a lot of what I had to do for like, for just like laying out the book and structuring it was just like, okay, well, the first book spanned a year. The second book cannot be 15 times longer than the first book. <laughs> so 
I had to learn how to like where what to compress and how to do it and where. And so for this third book, I'm I'm giving myself another um, le- one year or less um, actually uh, time span to work with. I'm trying to trying to limit myself um, from from the get go so that I don't spend 15 years wandering in the desert. Yeah. Well, and it's it's weird because you because that is like a big part of our jobs as storytellers is figuring out how much time passes in the story. And, yep. and it's something that even, I, I don't think any of my creative writing teachers ever mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> like, but like I get obsessive over, especially with multiple viewpoints, trying to fit everything in really tightly and knowing exactly how many days have passed and all of that. Yes. And it, it always ends, ends with me frustrated. And, and, you know, and for, for my stuff, it's okay. And then setting that against actual world events. So. Oh gosh. And that makes it even more complicated. Yeah. Because like, so a number of the, the drafts um, of Hidden Palace I was going to have one character um, coming across from England to New York on the Lusitania on on its last full voyage before um, uh, before the uh, before it was torpedoed, yeah. and so you know well that's a you know it sounds just sounds to sound like Doctor Who that's a fixed point in time I have to have it be on a particular day you know um, and so what that means is that. You got. You think of it like like um, bobby pinning a, a you know a, a piece of fabric to something, and then you know it's going to bunch up if you don't have it all like smoothed out. If you don't have it, you know, like pinned, you know, down in the right in places where they're, you know, it's like okay, think of it like okay, there's a pin here at the triangle shirtwaist fire. There's a pin here at the Lusitania. There's a pin here at you know and then it's like you have to have a flow of the book between those points. Otherwise, it's just all punching up. Everyone's like standing around waiting for the Lusitania to go down and then it goes down and then you get on with the rest of the book. It's like, so I I had to actually like unpin it and because it just wasn't working as much as I wanted to make it work. Um, And I had to have her come over on like, you know, some, some totally you know, random unknown ship, but I, it, I wanted her to come over on the Lusitania for character reasons because it reflect reflected parts of her life and whatever. But yeah, so I have my reasons. I, I was just, I was just too married to the idea. And eventually I just had to give it up and be like, I can't because it just throws off the rest of the timeline, man. And that's, that's the kind of thing when your creative writing teacher tells you uh, to, to be willing to kill your darlings. Yeah. That's the type of thing that they're talking about is, those exactly exactly it's not even necessary characters it's it's ideas that you get attached to yes and that you don't want to let go and the rest of the draft is suffering because of it exactly that's exactly it i think a lot of people misinterpret that as like well if you love a line throw it out it's like no keep the lines you love as long as they're working as long as like they're doing their their job it's 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 the things that you love that everyone is telling you okay man this this just isn't It's, it's, yeah. How, how far are you going to stretch things in order to keep that one gem in when, if you take it out, you can get three more gems because everything's going to just fall into place better. Yeah. I think I really struggled with that in the early drafts of, of the current epic fantasy that's coming out next year that I just, Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, I, and I was working on it during COVID, which didn't help. And I, I think that I just bashed my head against 
the kind of the moments of cool that I thought that I was working towards Mm -hmm. and then, and realized that I was twisting whole narratives around moments of cool that, yeah, they're, they're good moments of cool, but they're not good enough to sacrifice the rest of the book for. Right. Yeah. And, and it's a struggle to know when to pull the plug on that kind of thing. Yeah. And we get these ideas in our, like these, these visions of like, it's going to look epic. It's like, it's going to be, you know, the, you know, whatever is going to be some Lord of the Rings looking, coming down the hill with the, you know, (laughs) holding, holding the sword high. And it's like, you know what? If it doesn't work, it doesn't pay off. It doesn't, he gotta, it's gotta actually feel earned. And if it doesn't feel like the rest of the book is, is supporting that, then, then yeah, it's just not going to work. Yeah, totally. Totally. Now, so I, I like to try to wrap up this uh, podcast asking everybody what the last thing that you ate that blew your mind was. Oh my gosh. The last thing that ate that blew my mind. Um... The blue anything oh. or or even that you're just still thinking about. I'm just still thinking about. Oh oh yes okay. Um, there's a restaurant here in Pleasanton called Oyo O Y O. Just opened um I think like six months ago, and my husband and I had our first date night in I think it was over a year and a half a year a year and a bit. Uh, thank you know because of you know circumstances and we went there and I had a grilled octopus salad oh my goodness that was unbelievable it was so good and I like it was the kind of thing where you eat it and you just want to stand up and applaud it was just (laughs) smoky the texture was perfect the rest of the salad around it was it just supported the flavors it was one of those amazing amazing experiences and i i apologize my dog is growling in the background he's no rubbing his back on on the on the floor and going Rawr. i think he's he's experiencing the octopus salad memory along with me somehow <laughs> oh that's very cool that's uh that's definitely gosh i don't even i, I feel like i've never even been to a restaurant that would offer an octopus salad Oh, oh, that's come out here. We'll we'll go. You know what? I would give it a try. I've been I've been trying really hard to kind of I, I kind of grew up as one of those kids that was very picky. And uh-huh. the last few years I've been really trying to make an effort on trying new flavors and accepting new things. And honestly, it's been awesome. I feel mm-hmm. like I like things way more every single time I try something than I ever would have expected. That's good. That's really cool. And I say that's good. I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, thank God, because I, um, I always I ate a lot. I, my brother and I just, especially my brother, he, he was the guy who like would order snails in a restaurant when he was 15 years old. And my parents oh were my like, goodness. what? And he's like, yeah, well, let me, let me try them. And, and so, you know, that was like, I just grew up in a foodie family and my kids now it's like, there are three accepted foods. If you deviate from those three accepted foods, we will throw it back in your face. <laughs> and I, I just have to be patient and be like, they will get older and they will try things. And I cannot make eating a horrible experience for them, or they just will develop lifelong aversions. And I don't want to do that to them. So I have to, and it's just so hard to be patient. Um, so I'm glad to hear that, that, um, that you are, you are branching out and trying new things and, and, and I hope that happens for them too. (laughs) Well, for me, it took 30 years, so, (laughs) you know, (laughs) (laughs) 
but hopefully we'll get there for everybody. You know, I, it was, it's weird looking back at it as somebody who's trying to be more into food, Mm -hmm. looking back at it and going, man, I feel like I missed out on so many flavors and interesting things. And it was all just because kind of younger Brian was scared of trying something. Yeah. And you know, it's, again, it's like, who knows what in your brain had to unlock yeah. for for that to happen. And, and it becomes, you know, just a growth experience. And the cool thing is having those even 30 years later and being like, okay, I'm still growing as, a, as you know, and changing as a person and, and trying new things and learning new things. And, you know, I, I think, and not being like locked into that idea of, of who you are and what you like and don't like. And that's, I just, I wish that for all of us too. That was novelist Helene Wecker. Thanks again to Helene for coming on to chat. You can find links to her social media and books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson and Patrick Hunt for their backing on Patreon. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.